Our scripture for today is 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amuel, at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amuel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land and shall bring produce Bring in the produce that your master's grandson may eat, may have bread to eat. But Mephizosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my house or at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to, said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephizosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephizosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephizosheth's servants. So Mephizosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, James. Thanks for taking all those hard names so I didn't have to read them. I love the way that this church does that. Uh, Yeah, my name is Brian Sorgan Fry, and I really do see myself as your uh, minister to the campus, so thanks for the ways that y'all love and support us. Um, For those of you who who have children, I don't know how you ended up choosing the name of your children, but Liza and I, we had two rules. We said one— it could not be a long name because Sorgan Fry is hard enough that if our child was named like Anne Elizabeth Sorgan Fry, it'd be a curse on that child. But second of all, we just had this, this, uh, this rule. If somebody threw out a name and the other, other person didn't like it, it immediately wasn't considered again. And so usually what happened was Liza would, show, would let's say for Shell, he ended up being Shell, would throw out a name. And the reason I would throw it out is she didn't know it, but that name would be associated, like, let's say, with somebody in high school that didn't treat me well. 
And so as soon as I heard that name, I was like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that, you know. And maybe you have something similar. But, the, but what that shows us is that a name actually has an identity, has an association with it. And when Jesus shows up, there is one name in the whole Old Testament that he is most associated with. It's, it's a title that he goes by a lot. And it's Son of David. It's who he wants to be associated with. Now, on the one hand, yes, that's because he's actually of the lineage of David, and there's these promises in the Old Testament that Messiah would come from the lineage of David. But also, and this is what Tim Keller points out, there's this, that King David, when he's at his best, it means that you get a small window into the character of what God is like. That David at his best shows you what God as king, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is actually going to look like. And this passage that James just read for us, it is, I'm telling you, it's David at his best. David expresses this extravagant kindness to an individual named Mephibosheth. And in that extravagant kindness, yes, we get a window into David's heart, but ultimately, ultimately, we get a window into the son of David, Jesus' heart, and what he's like. So, Think about it in this terms. As we look at uh, kind of David's kindness, ultimately it's a show of the character of Jesus. And so let's look at this passage under three headings. One, the recipient of kindness. Who is it? Second of all, the kindness given. And thirdly, the response. So uh, recipient, given, response. First, the recipient of kindness. All right, this is verse 1 through 3. The, the recipient is this hard-pronounced name, Mephibosheth. Who is this guy? All right, and you've got to give me like three minutes to be a little bit teachy, okay, for history. But David, right now at this point, he is, he is the king of Israel. He has secured safety for his kingdom. He's defeated uh, most of Israel's enemies. And he's begun this, what is going to be this immense period of prosperity and peace in Israel. And so now that the throne and the kingdom is secure, it's time for David really to do the work of a king, which is to display kindness and love and generosity. And so David, what he decides is it's time to make good on a promise that he made chronologically sometime, maybe 15, 20 years before. If you go back to 1 Samuel 20, you can see this. And in that story, if you're familiar with it, the previous king before David was a guy named Saul. Saul ends up being a bad king. Saul actually tries to kill David multiple times. But he has a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David were the best of friends. And Jonathan knew that David would be king. He knew uh, David's heart. He knew God's promises to David. And so Jonathan and David, he, he asked David to make this covenant, this promise. He said, David, I want you to, to always show love and kindness to my family. And David promised that, like 15 to 20 years before, this, before what we just read. That's the background. And so David, now that he has the capacity to make good on that promise... And you know he's thinking about that promise by the way that he asked the question in verse 1. He says, for Jonathan's sake, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And here's how you know that this is a picture of God. Because that word kindness is the word hesed, which is the description of God's everlasting love that he has for his people. So he says, I want to show hesed to Jonathan. And so David's told there is somebody. It's this living heir of Saul and Jonathan, uh, that, uh, of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. And you get three things, three kind of descriptions of Mephibosheth that's going to summarize who this guy is. First, we're told he's a cripple. And look, being a cripple is hard today, 
But think about in ancient times, before there were any kind of handicap laws or any kind of assistant like that, they, they were helpless. They could not function for themselves. They were consumers rather than producers, right? So he's a cripple. Second of all, his name is Mephibosheth, which literally means seething dishonor. How about that for a name, right? Which means he had immense shame. And that encapsulates who he is. He's the last heir of an embarrassing uh, period in Israel's history, Saul's, Saul's reign. He just doesn't matter in the world's eyes. He's full of shame. Third, he's an enemy. See, this is what's interesting. Did you... This interaction, when he comes to David in verse 6, he falls on the ground and he goes prostrate. And then David has to say, do not fear. Why is Mephibosheth fearing? Why in verse 8 does he say, uh, why does he call himself a dead dog? Because when David calls him to his palace, Mephibosheth is afraid. Because what every other kingdom does, and it still happens today, honestly, is when you took power, what you did is you executed the rival king's, not only the rival king, but the rival, rival king's heirs, so that there would be no more threat, right? And so when Mephibosheth is called to David's palace, he thinks this is the end. David's finally going to eliminate the last threat to his power, uh, you know, descendant of Saul. And Mephibosheth, he's an enemy. And so when you look at Mephibosheth's uh, resume, it, it's not one to be desired. It's rough. He's shameful. He's crippled, and he's an enemy of the king. And that's the one that David bestows extravagant kindness on. A nobody. Somebody who has nothing to offer David. Someone who actually should, is against him, and David should be against. And it's that person that David showers kindness to. What's the point? There's a, uh, there's a future Hall of Fame baseball player by the name of uh, Albert Pujols, uh, one of the greats. And back when he played with the St. Louis Cardinals, um, they would have this day every year, actually, that Pujols started um, that was dedicated to uh, children with Down syndrome, and it was called Buddy Day. And what they would do is they would pair each player uh, with a child with, with uh, Down syndrome. That would be their buddy for the day, and they would hang out with them all day. And then even kind of the climax would be, during f- first inning warm-ups, when the Cardinals were out in the field, your buddy would go stand with you and kind of take field with you uh, while you warmed up for the first inning. And so Albert's uh, buddy, his, his name was Danny. And so, you know, after warm-ups, when the kids start running off the field, Danny turns around to Albert and says, Hey, Albert, hit me a homer. You know, and then all the other kids start hearing that. And they say, Yeah, hit me one, too. Hit me one, too. And, you know, there's just this rain of kids crying out, Hit me a home run. And so Albert walks up to the plate that day, and he hits three home runs. And after the game, you know, he's being mobbed by the press. And he just makes his way through the press uh, with, with all these uh, baseballs. And he, goes, and he goes outside, and he just looks for Danny. And when he finally finds Danny, he hands him the game ball, and he says, I hit one for you. And look, think about that. There was something revealed about Pujols that otherwise we never would have known except for Danny being next to him. Everybody knew that, pow- that Pujols has power and skill and is this great baseball player. But it took Danny to reveal what, what otherwise people wouldn't have known, his gracious and loving nature, right? It brought that out of him. And see, Mephibosheth, being next to David, reveals something that we otherwise might, might not know, that David has incredible love and grace and kindness. It actually brings that out. But see, remember, 
This is more than just about David. David gives us a window into the kindness of God. King Jesus, right? Could Mephibosheth actually show what we're like? And therefore, when we see what we're like, it unveils the extravagant kindness of God. Right? Just maybe, just maybe the Apostle Paul has this story in mind in Romans 5 when he says, while we were yet helpless sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. That basically sums up what Mephibosheth was. And he says, that's who we are. So if you didn't know what Christianity is about this morning, I would say get ready. It's about the king of the universe who looks to show kindness and extravagant love not to good people. Not to, not to people that have things to offer to God. He brings love and kindness and salvation to, and actually exclusively only to, those who have nothing to offer him. Nothing but our own weakness and our sin and our rebellion. And you'll know the love of King Jesus to the extent that you see yourself in Mephibosheth. Because what keeps us from King Jesus, it's not our weakness and sin, it is our pride. It's our unwillingness to see that we are Mephibosheth. And it's just hard for us. Because we think our guilt and shame is what keeps us from Jesus. But Mephibosheth actually shows us that the things that wreck our life, the things we hide, are the very places that Jesus is going to show his extravagant kindness if we'll receive it. So look, if you walk in this morning and you feel hopeless and helpless, I've got good news. God loves Mephibosheths. That's where he shows up. And so if if you're spiritually crippled this morning, get ready to be amazed by the kindness of Jesus. That's who he is. So first, Mephibosheth Mephibosheth shows us the recipient of God's kindness, and it gives us a great window into the heart of God and his heart towards us. Second of all, what is the kindness granted? Verse 7 through 11. All right, remember I told you Dave was keeping this promise all the way back some 15 years ago. What he does is he just pledges to not cut his love off from Jonathan's descendants after he becomes king. Now, I have no idea what Jonathan and David had in mind when he made that covenant. I'm not even sure he knew completely. But I'll tell you this, if all David meant by that promise was that he would spare the life of Jonathan's descendants, if that's all he meant, incredibly gracious. No one else did that in, in world history at that time. But look what he does. It's, in, it's, it's unbelievable, honestly. He makes Mephibosheth wealthy because he gives him back land that once was Saul's. And then he provides Ziba and ser- servants to work the land to ensure that he always has income. And then he doesn't just spare Mephibosheth's life. He makes his poverty turn into riches. He makes an enemy into his friend. And then it's over the top because if, this is repeated three times, which means I think the, the, the writer wants us to know this. He says, you, Mephibosheth, the one with shame attached to your name, I want you to sit every day at the king's table and eat at a place of honor. Did you see it? King David gives Mephibosheth a new status, a new identity. He says, you're going to sit with my son. So that if you walked into the king's dinner that night, there would be all of David's sons and Mephibosheth. Exact same position, exact same identity, exact same kindness. You would not be able to tell any difference uh, between them. And what he's saying is your identity, Mephibosheth, will will not be wrapped up in your past. 
It will not be wrapped up in, in, in who you were connected to or the fact that you were my enemy. It'll be wrapped up in the fact that you are my honored son, loved by me, honored by me. That is who you are, Mephibosheth. Again, I've got uh, two girls, so uh, we're, we're always into Disney movies. And as you know, Disney is, uh, instead of making new movies, they're just remaking old ones into, uh, into kind of live action movies, which actually have been very good. Uh, our, my favorite is actually the remake of Cinderella because of, because of how much it presses into this uh, truth. Right? If you know the story of Cinderella, for the most movies, she is a, she's essentially a slave. A slave to her evil stepmother. And she's living this, poverty, this life of poverty alone in a tower. Cinderella literally means girl of ash. Uh, her only friends are these mice, right, which is send you into therapy quickly. And, uh, and th- like that is her complete identity until something happens, right? Until something so cataclysmic happens that a prince discovers her, Prince Charming, and marries her. And at that moment, she's given this new status. She's given this new identity that she's the queen of Prince Charming. And so immediately, she's no longer known as slave girl. She's no longer known as someone who is uh, mistreated and poor, the girl of ash. She's the bride of Prince Charming. And you begin to realize that that new status disenfranchises her from everything else that dared to define her. Poverty doesn't define her anymore. The mocking of her sisters don't mind her, uh, define her anymore. Her, her stepmom's opinion doesn't define her anymore. The new status does. She's free. And see, so when David gave Mephibosheth this new status, this new identity as his honored son, it was so big and so amazing that it dis- disenfranchised him from everything else that dared to define him. This is now who he is. And if, remember, if this is a window into the heart of God for his people, it, then the text has kind of got to do this to us. If you think it's absurd what David did for Mephibosheth, what God does for his people, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's kind of like that, well, you haven't seen anything yet. Like, how would you answer this question? Why did God himself, in the person of Jesus, come to this earth? I think the, the most common answer is to uh, go to the cross to forgive me of my sins so that I don't go to hell. And that is true. But that's kind of the bare minimum. God takes on flesh in the person of Jesus so that he can come to this world and actually identify with us. And then he goes to the cross and he's so identified with you that what happens is our sin and our shame come to Jesus if you trust him by faith and he, he switches places with us. And he gets treated as the weak, crippled, rebel outcast so that all of my sin is forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. He switches places. And then all that he has, all his righteousness, all his honor, all his inheritance, you know what it does? It comes to you. And he shares it with you. And so, yes, Mephibosheth, it does reveal us. But don't miss the point. The point of this passage is actually David's kindness to him. And the point of Scripture is actually God and His character and Jesus and what He does for you. And what He does is that by faith we're united to Him so that we are made new, forgiven, new creation, new identity that's defined by the fact that you are loved and treasured by Jesus. That's your status, whether you feel it or not. 
And look, some of you in this room, you cannot get over things that you've done in your past. They, they, they still haunt you. And we say things like, well, yeah, I, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Don't you see what this is saying? Who cares about your own opinion of yourself? It doesn't matter. Quit putting it over Jesus' opinion of you. Jesus' opinion was counts, and he has declared your identity not, not as wrapped up in what things you've done in your past, but on a cross he became the things that we're ashamed of so that you are now clean. And that's who you are. Being sinned against and mistreated and abused by someone is awful, and it leaves a mark. And I'm telling you, King Jesus brings a new identity that says fundamentally who you are is not what other people have done to you. It's the fact that you're my son or daughter. You're a child of the king. All of us, again, if, if, if you have children, all of parents, we, we fundamentally almost, we try to wrap our identity around our kids. So close are they to us that many times their performance becomes our identity. I know this. I've been a 10-year-old softball coach, and you see some of the parents, and you see what comes out of me, that their performance, it seems like it's a reflection on me. And the extravagant kindness of Jesus says no. Like our kids' performance is not our identity. By the death of Jesus, you were adopted into the family of God. That's who you are. He brings a, his kindness does something extravagant. It changes your identity. So that's the recipient. That's the kindness given. So what should our response be? This is verse 8 and 13. I, I do want to wrap this up quickly, but I want to say two things. Because I think... Hopefully this is practical. If that is how God has moved to, uh, towards us in Jesus, if that's how he treated us when we were helpless, hopeless, and an enemy, I think it's supposed to move us to start loving and sacrificing for people that don't matter in the world's eyes. Right? See, Christianity is being displayed when we start serving and being friends with people that actually cost you time and energy people who don't understand you, people who are broken in need of mercy, because when you see those people, you see yourself before King Jesus, and he came after us. And so it means we actually start looking to love and serve enemies, which would be alien in this culture that we live in right now. No one is doing enemy love very well right now, but it's what the church is called to be. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but like, I think it means we at least begin by sacrificing awkwardness to be with people unlike us. I don't even like being awkward, but I think that's what it begins to look like. So that RUF or the church or Christ Press can be a place that when you walk in, it's people that normally wouldn't hang out with each other actually find friendship. What if this place became where rich and poor, black and white, former Muslims, everyone all together reunited that used to not like each other, but now do because of Jesus? But then lastly, I, I think it's supposed to change the way that we view our suffering and even our sin. Like, go back to verse 13 again. I love that this little detail is put at the end. I, I think this is why the writer put it in there. I don't know. But even after everything that David did, it still says this. Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. 
it still wants you to, it still wants you to know that he's crippled. That there's still things in his life that in spite of David's kindness, there's still things that, he, that are in his life that he wished would change. He still couldn't walk. But that didn't change the fact that he still had this new honor and this new status. Yet he woke up every day still realizing he was a cripple. And he kept sitting at the king's table. And so I think you might could even say that his continued crippled state, what about this? Made him every day more aware of just how kind David was to him. That there's something about because he continued to be a cripple that every day he had to live in the kindness of David and in his mercy. I read, um, I read the summer when I was, you know, reading about the pandemic and all these stories like we've all been doing for uh, way too long. And there was um, this story about, I think it was in uh, Florida, I believe, where the COVID lockdown had happened. And like happened in most places, nursing homes uh, really got locked down. And so uh, in one facility where uh, patients with dementia and Alzheimer's were, that place got locked down. And so there were no more visitors allowed. Well, this was telling the story of um, this married couple. Her name was Mary, and what she had done every day is in the morning she would go and she would sit with her husband who had dementia and couldn't really remember her, but he would, she would sit there and, and she would hold his hand. And she would be with him and she would tell him stories and remind him who he was and all that. When the COVID lockdown happened, she couldn't go anymore. And so the article said this. Well, here's what she said. I guess I'm going to become a dishwasher now. Because the only people that were still allowed in the nursing home were those who worked in the kitchen. So she filled out the application. She became a dishwasher so that she could go in and still hold his hand and remind him of who he was and how she was still there. And it was this beautiful story of literally a man who was physically forgetting. But what mattered was not his remembering. What mattered was, was her faithfulness to her promises. And she was saying... No matter what you forget, no matter where you go, what's ultimately going to matter is how committed I am to my promises. And what if, again, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to explain all difficult circumstances in life. I think it's a mystery. But what if there's some things that aren't removed immediately in our life? Things like suffering, things that we wish would get better, things that we wish would be removed, and, and, and and they really should be. But what if those are one of the things that keeps you dependent on the fact that what I need ultimately is Jesus' promises to me, Jesus' commitment to me. I don't have to bank on my commitment to him. And that those things actually keep me weak and keep me needing Jesus' faithfulness and Jesus to make good on his promises that one day he will make everything new. He will. And you can hold him to that. But also, and I'll end with this, I, I, I realize this might sound a little crazy. But God really does want you daily, hourly, to experience the thrill that your identity is bound up in his love and his commitment to you. And could this not be one of the reasons? Because I sometimes struggle with this question. Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make all my sin problems go away? I've been a Christian for 20 plus years. I'm still struggling with some of the things that I discovered back in high school. Do you ever get frustrated by that? Like I, I do. And I think one of the reasons is he never wants you to forget the fact that your identity is wrapped up in the one who has shown you mercy. 
And I think one of the things that emblazes that into our souls is when the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus is not just a past event that happened 20 years ago, but a daily realization. Which actually means you're growing as a Christian when you become more and more aware of how flawed, weak, and sinful you actually are. I'm not saying that you sin more, but the knowledge of your heart increases so that after 10 years of walking with Jesus, you identify more as the one who received immense mercy. Because I'm still spiritually crippled, today I live by the forgiveness and righteousness that God has given me. I love it. Mephibosheth is still a cripple, and he's still at the Lord's table, and he's still honored. And Jesus is not going to let you think that his graciousness to you is simply a past event. He's going to bestow it on you every day. And that might come through weakness and suffering. It'll definitely come through weakness in our own sin where we keep repenting and we keep coming to the table and we keep believing that what God has said about us is what is ultimately true. Because what's going what's to make you make it to the end is not our con- zealous commitment to him. It's the fact that he never breaks a promise. And he has promised. He has promised that not, if you're in Christ, nothing will separate you from his love. And that promise is so true that he went to the cross to ensure it. And so you can bank on that. And so if you find yourself this morning bored at Jesus' love, frustrated at where you are, the answer is to go back to the kindness of Jesus. Whatever hasn't been healed or fixed yet, it can't be because his kindness is removed. Go back to him. Cry out to him. And see that his kindness is because he covenanted to be with you and it will not change. That is an invitation. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for uh, letting us see the story of David and Mephibosheth, uh, the story of really extravagant uh, grace. Um, I know, at least for me, so much uh, self-pity comes because I look around and I see how much things are broken around me and even in myself. But man, we just forget that you're protecting and providing and even loving us now. And so would you help us to see the greater son of David, help us to see uh, the mercy of Jesus and glory in the new identity that you give us by faith. In your son's name I pray, amen.